Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure, and in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode two, season one, and today I talk to Dr. Robert Engen, Assistant Professor at the Canadian Forces College and the official historian for Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. I spoke to Robert about his recent work on Canadian soldiers serving in Northwest Europe during the Second World War. In particular, I wanted to get his views on what motivated these soldiers to enlist and fight during that conflict. He spoke to me from his office in Canada. Robert, welcome to the Combat Morale podcast. Could you start by introducing yourself and how you became interested in Canadian forces during the Second World War? Hi, Tom. Um, I am a, uh, an assistant professor at the Canadian Forces College in Toronto, uh, Ontario. It's our, uh, that's our senior staff college. Um, I'm also the official historian now of Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, one of our uh, one of our country's regular force uh, units. It has a history going back to the First World War. Um, I've done a number of books on combat motivation, uh, combat morale. Um, the first one was Canadians Under Fire, uh, which is a study of uh, infantry effectiveness during the, the Second World War. It was published in 2009. And the more recent one um, was Strangers in Arms, um, which is a, a more detailed study of combat motivation in uh, in the Canadian in the Canadian experience, um, and I've also had the great honor very recently of uh, being the editor on a volume called Why We Fight: uh, New Approaches, New Canadian Approaches to the Human Dimension of Warfare. It has a number of different essays on the topic, from uh, primarily from Canadian scholars, but we also have a uh, posthumous essay from uh, Professor Roger Spiller um, from Fort Leavenworth, uh, who was uh, who uh, came to our conference um, shortly before he passed away. And uh, myself and Dr. Alan English had the uh, great privilege of, uh, of uh, editing and, and completing his paper and, and including it. Um, and that one's a that one's a, a dig a final a final dig at SLA Marshall um, from the man who uh, who in part uh, uh, pioneered the genre of uh, attempting to tear apart Marshall's work. So, so I've oh uh, sorry go ahead sorry you go ahead I will edit that out so I just thought you stopped. Um, the I, I've I've been interested in questions of of motivation and morale and behavior um, for uh, for a couple of decades now. I, I think a lot of it came from some of the reading and some of the the, the work I did as a as an undergraduate student in Canada, um, looking at how 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 accepted and how uh, overwhelmingly important the work of writer, American writers like SLA Marshall and Dave Grossman were in defining what we thought soldiers do in battle and what we, what we and, and how an entire paradigm had kind of arisen as a result of this idea that, well, most soldiers don't do anything in battle. They don't fire their weapons. They're not, uh, they're not, not participating in, in the action. How, how readily that had been accepted um, at a, at a very, at a very, a fairly young age that, uh, or, or, sorry, I'll start that one again, at a fairly early point in my career, that uh, that struck me as uh, a question that needed further resolution, and that we needed to find some ways to kind of 
scope in on what was happening as close to as close to the the pointy end of battle as was possible to it to see whether or not we could infer whether Marshall and Grossman and so forth um, had any validity whatsoever because I know that in Canada a lot of the a lot of the the work that is being done um, by by uh, a lot of a lot of the in Canada a lot of the work in the army and the armed forces has been inspired by Marshall and Grossman. And that's been one of the main sources of knowledge that is transmitted to our armed forces about um, behavior and leadership and command um, and, and motivation. And if those, if those sources are flawed, which I believe that they are, then, you know, there's, there's some, some real questions that need to be raised about, about what our own armed forces are, uh, are, are producing and how they are, how they're coping with these, uh, with these questions. So that was one of the questions I'm, I'm, I'm very glad my career has kind of led me um, to work in uh, to, towards professional military education, which, which I love. Um, and being a part of the staff college has given me an opportunity to uh, engage with, uh, engage with some of the, the, brightest uh, the brightest minds in um in in the canadian military um and uh, i'm i'm I, I, my, my, my views have become a little more nuanced over, over this time but i'm i'm still i'm i i'm, I'm hopeful that uh oh sorry now now that we're <laughs> i apologize now now that we're now that we're live instead of uh, instead of uh, just having an informal conversation i feel like i'm tripping all over my words but uh, um I, i'm sure you'll be able to get something something out of what i've just said there i'm just i'm just rambling a lot at this point no problem <laughs> We're going to talk about the combat motivation of the Canadian infantrymen during the Second World War. Before we start, could you outline the nature, size and composition of Canadian forces that fought in Europe from 1943 to 1945? Sure thing. Um, the Canadian army in Europe was uh, an, interesting, an interesting force, unlike in the First World War when the Canadian Corps was fed into the line uh, quite early and Canadian forces were, uh, were on the Western Front from a very early stage of the fighting. In the Second World War, the Canadians were held in reserve for most of the war. And the plan had been that they would be one of the spearheads that would uh, eventually cross the channel and, and, uh, lead the, and help lead the, the drive to liberate Europe. But one of the consequences of that is that they saw almost no action until very late in the war as compared to um, almost every Commonwealth uh, country uh, that, uh, that they were fighting beside. Um, the, the, there was a, an entire Canadian Army, first Canadian Army, that was operating as a part of the 21st Army Group, along with the 2nd British Army. Um, the 1st the, uh, Canadian Army was under Canadian command. They often had British and sometimes even American units and, and Polish units that were attached to them um, and they kind of rotated in and out over the course of, uh, over the, course of the campaign in Northwest Europe. Um, they deploy into 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 Normandy, um, fight their way up uh, along the Channel ports, um, fighting to try to uh, not so much liberate the city of Antwerp so much as uh, open the approaches to Antwerp is the major contribution of First Canadian Army after in the in the fall of 1944, um, trying to uh, dig the Germans out of the of the Scheldt estuary that uh, that is preventing any shipping from act, useful shipping from actually arriving in Antwerp and is contributing to the bottleneck of uh, of supplies and logistical problems that uh, that all of the Allies were 
facing at that point. Um, the First Canadian Army um, was uh, uh, had uh, originally had five divisions in it. Two of those divisions and one of its core headquarters um, was sent down to Italy in 1943, and they're actually the ones that uh, first see combat in the Second World War or sustained combat in the Second World War um, in uh, in Sicily as part of the invasion effort there, and then they're ultimately reinforced by an armored division um, and uh, as they fight their way up uh, up uh, up Italy. The Canadian Corps is or the, the the first Canadian Corps is is brought back to the to the Canadian Army in uh, you know, very late in the war. I believe in March uh, they are uh, March 45. Um, they're all reunited again just in time for the final liberation of Holland and invasion of uh, of Northwest Europe or Northwest Germany, um, focused on the uh, the town of Oldenburg. Um, so it is uh, they they kind of hold up the left flank of the of the 21st Army Group. Um, it's doing they're they're often in a often in a position where. It's not intended that they should get the spotlight, but they, uh, because they are, uh, because they're, they're doing fairly inglorious tasks, um, holding down the Panzers in uh, in Normandy, um, cleaning up the Germans, uh, Germans in the Channel ports, and and uh, and fighting their way into the the Scheldt estuary. But there's uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of good that the Canadians end up doing there. So before we launch into some of the detail, how would you define combat motivation and combat morale? Well, both of those terms are really contentious, and there's not a lot of shared meaning among scholars uh, when when we use those uh, those terms. And in my book, uh, Strangers in Arms, I, I spend a few pages actually, you know, talking about some of the definitions, working out, you know, their their their, their pros and cons. There's there's a lot of because you have to be quite you have to be quite careful in this field um, to avoid talking past one another um, and to make sure that you are you are using terms that that have some kind of shared meaning because it cannot be it cannot be assumed um, with uh, with either of those terms the one that I like and the one that I use for strangers in arms and and, and my work subsequent um, for uh, for combat motivation um, is fairly fairly broad but I treat it as as a process involving a soldier's decision to fight and to keep fighting in combat. And that makes combat motivation distinct from a soldier's motives in joining up in the army in the first place. Um, and I, I don't think that the two should be at all conflated because someone who's enthusiastic and gets all wound up by the drums and trumpets early on um, and, uh, and signs their name on the line is not, is, it might be a, a great deal more reluctant once the stakes are, are, are actually on the table. And the people who say are conscripted into the army and are not there by their own choice might actually find within themselves um, reserves that they had no idea about before and might actually make much, much better combatants than volunteers would um, at, the, uh, at the same time. So it's uh, uh, for, for combat motivation, I, I see that as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a decent starting point for a, for a uh, definition. Morale, is even tougher. Uh, one of my favorite quotes about morale was um, from the, uh, the uh, British uh, deputy science advisor um, in 1945, just after the end of the war in 1945, who, um, writing to the army to the army council, um, uh, was uh, uh, was in, in frustration. Said that they had to stop talking about morale as if it was a high holy mystery on the one hand and a matter of proper cattle feeding on the other. And this is, I think, uh, quite representative of, of you know, the range of views um, associated with uh, associated with uh, uh, with morale. Um, for for my purposes, 
I like to define morale quite broadly because I don't see it as just a military phenomenon at all. I see it as um, uh, it is uh, it is a, a commitment to performing a job or task, and that can and the uh, it is a it is a um, it is an individual trait rather than a group trait because there there really there really can be there really is no measurable group morale. It is, it is a, the group can influence an individual's morale, but it, there is, you know, there's the group itself does not have a mind that is able to, uh, to process that. So it's talking about a, uh, of, of, uh, of morale as a collective, um, as a collective trait I've, I've always found to be somewhat prob uh, problematic um, because when we're talking about the infantry, uh, we're talking about, you know, their, their, their job is to close with and, you know, destroy the enemy, hold ground. Um, the, uh, the willingness to fight and the willingness to persevere in fighting are essentially the job or task that they have to perform, that they are, that they are performing. And so um, I try to associate morale with the commitment to performing that particular job. But I think it has broader, uh, broader, uh, uh, a broader context that it can be applied to. So tell us about some of the myths and legends about the motivation of Canadian soldiers during the Second World War. Well, part of it is there, there's a number of, um, there's a number of, of common myths that Canadians um, have uh, bought into. There's the idea of there's in, in Canada, there's the militia myth, the idea that the, uh, that the Canadian soldier will um, is is you know that the, the citizen soldier who uh, does not need to be a professional does not need to be a regular um, needs to uh, needs uh, only needs minimal training and you know, will basically pick up their gun and go off to war and will will win that war um, with a with a with a minimum of effort and very importantly with a minimum of, of government expense um, and that it's uh, that is a, uh, a a tried and true um, myth within uh, specifically within Canada that uh, military has historians are, are constantly butting their heads against, um, in part, in part because uh, it is often popularized as a, as a, as a, as a way to reduce military expenditures. Um, there's also the, we also see a lot of influence of SLA Marshall from a, from a fairly early point um, in terms of the, uh, in terms of understanding how, how, how Canadian soldiers behaved as well as, even though Marshall was not talking about Canadian soldiers at all when he's saying that only 15% of, of, uh, of infantry would only, would ever fire their weapons in combat. He's talking about Americans, but we seem to, because he had universal pretensions, um, many scholar, many Canadian scholars have kind of latched onto that as well. That's a, that's uh, that that's valid for the for the Canadian experience as well, um, which I do not believe uh, that it that it is in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> so, when we look at Canadian soldiers and what motivated them, were they motivated in the ways that sort of people like Shills and Yanovitz describe in their famous nineteen forty eight. Uh, paper on primary group theory. I'm thinking about sort of strong social relationships and close personal bonds between individual members of a unit or group as shaping the way that they fought. Now it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a an excellent question, and it is the answer is kind of complicated. There, one of the things that I look at in Strangers in Arms as being an overriding consideration is the issue of casualties. And part of the study is uh, a look at the, the consolidated casualty lists from every battalion of the uh, of the Canadian forces um, that were or the Canadian Army that was that was fighting in in Europe at that time. And the casualties are are uh, 
almost catastrophic in, in some cases. And you would easily have 100 to 150% casualties among um, battalion officers within, um, within a few months of, of hard fighting and sometimes somewhere within 50 to 75% casualties of, uh, among, among the other ranks. And the sheer amount of turnover within the infantry battalions was completely inimical to the idea of these strong social bonds as being the only thing that could hold soldiers together in battle. I, I do not see any convincing way that you can say that it is um, that that it is this this. The, the cohesion is based upon that strong personal knowledge, the, the band of brothers kind of idea of the of, uh, of, of what is motivating soldiers to keep going, um, because they from a from a fairly early point, the infantry was taking such heavy casualties that the they don't know each other anymore. Um, there are reinforcements coming in from all over the place. Sometimes in the case of Canada, they tried to have it so that they would be coming in from the same part of the country, but that quickly broke down as well. And they were simply, um, the reinforcement system uh, eventually had to prioritize simply getting reinforcements where they needed to go. And it didn't much matter what the, uh, where, where they had, had previously come from. Um, they, just, they just needed them to, uh, they just needed them where they were needed. Um, and I think that was a, a fairly a fairly common experience across the across the Allied countries uh, that any any regional basis for reinforcements quickly has to be sacrificed um, for expediency. And so, then uh, looking at strangers strangers in arms, I was I was trying to find some um, some meaningful explanations for why this was or, or what was holding these soldiers together, if not that, that strong personal bond, because they were more often than not going into combat with a uh, with a bunch of people that they didn't know. And this was a very common experience within the within the, the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, and I can I, I came upon the idea of swift trust um, as a as something that uh, has a great deal of explanatory power, um, particularly in high intensity combat situations where you are where where the, the the casualties are so high that the people who are doing the fighting do not know each other anymore. Um, the swift trust theory is is uh, articulating mechanisms by which soldiers can get to essentially get to know each other and replace the replace those strong personal bonds which which everybody wants but they are, are not are not strictly speaking necessary because they can be replaced with um, technical expertise they can be replaced with a sense of professionalism with reputation with the um, uh, with the uh, uh, the uh, they can um, they can, uh, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> um, the swift bond of trust. Swift bond. Uh, sorry, I was getting a text message from my wife and I just, it just completely, it just, I, I just saw it flash up on my desk and I completely broke my train of, uh, my train of thought. But the swift, uh, the swift trust, uh, the swift trust, these, these bonds that are based upon the ability of soldiers to do the job and to do the job well can become the basis for new relationships within units that have been absolutely devastated by casualties and can allow them to keep fighting and to, to, to keep, to keep, to keep moving, to keep rolling, um, even with new people and new faces who they've never seen before being fed into the into the line constantly, which was a trait that I identified not just from casualties, but things like soldiers being left out of battle or disease casualties, um, people being constantly evacuated. The turmoil, the personnel turmoil in the Canadian units in the Second World War was uh, was immense. 
and the Canadians weren't even didn't even have the worst of it. There was far more. Uh, there, there, uh, there were there were un- um, the, the Canadians were, were basically always on the victorious side too. I, I shudder to think what these processes would have had to be had they had they been on the losing side. Um, but it would have it would have been even more exaggerated, and we would have. Uh, and, and so those those strong social bonds, I think, need to be interrogated when it comes to uh, when it comes to high intensity operations. They undoubtedly have a place uh, when in peacetime armies. Um, they undoubtedly have a pl- place in in low intensity operations where you're not facing these kind of casualties. But when you know half the unit is gone every month, uh, you, you you need you need new causal explanations. And did you find, I mean, this is a question, an aside, and there's been quite a lot on military sociology that people who are manning machines have a, a much tighter relationship because everybody's got an inter- interdependent role and there's social surveillance within a group compared, say, for, with, with riflemen who might want to fall into a shell hole if you're advancing and that you've got less dependence on your colleagues. Did you find that, say, with armoured or artillery units versus the infantry? Honestly, most of my work has been with the infantry, and I, I I wish that I had more of a comparative basis with the um, with the armor and artillery. I think that you're I think that you're you're probably onto something there. Um, that the uh, that the task cohesion um, that is going to be able to allow soldiers to 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 come together um, is going to be somewhat greater when you are working with machines and working on teams that have very fixed. Tact, you know, technical goals and very fixed technical skill sets that allow them to quickly get the measure of one another. Whereas um, the the skill set for the infantry is very, uh, you know, there's 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 a there's a there's a, there's a definite skill set there, but it might be less apparent in a in an immediate teamwork kind of role. I think that's that's where training comes in. I think that's the the role to some degree of of reputation um, that precedes troops uh, that uh, of, of 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 past um, endeavors or or you know past people that they've been associated uh, associated with. Finding some kind of uh, some kind of link there um, is was was extremely important, um, and being able to being able to rely upon the training and being able to rely upon the person who's coming in to know what to do without having to be held by the hand um, that that was a that was a big that was a big point of of uh, of concern for the Canadians um, that that the reinforcements that were coming in be able to operate and not necessarily be experts but they, they they had to they couldn't be the weak link they they had to they had to uh, they had to be able to hold up their end of things um, and the, the Canadians were really quite disturbed when when they they weren't uh, my my I guess one of the other myths that I, I didn't mention earlier was that the reinforcements were always terrible um, my uh, but I, I think most armies will will say that at, at some point oh the, the people who are coming in now are never as good as we were but my research indicates that the reinforcements were actually were actually uh, were rarely highly rated, but were usually rated as okay. They'll they'll do. They'll uh, they're they're satisfactory. They'll they uh, they can they can they can do the job, and that's all that you really need. Um, that that base level of of knowledge that you can rely upon this person that they've been through a similar training um, uh, that uh, that you have. So what was the role of sort of regimental leadership by NCOs and junior officers in the maintenance of combat performance and morale? Well, I think the, the junior officers had such a, a high turnover in terms of their in terms of casualties. 
um, they're close to close to double what the uh, as a proportion of their representation within the battalion. Um, junior officers were, were their casualty rates were almost twice that of uh, of uh, other ranks, um, and particularly NCOs. I think that NCOs um, were probably the backbone of of uh, cohesion, um, the backbone of of morale within most of these battalions because they were the ones, their, their survivability was a great deal higher than that of officers. Officers, the junior officers were, um, they were, they could be, they could be respected, they could be loved, um, they could be hated, but they were probably, there, there was a bit of a revolving door there and their casualty rates um, and the rate with which they left infantry battalions was so much higher than anybody else that I, I imagine they didn't take long before um, anybody was quite reluctant to get, you know, too close to or too attached to a particular officer. Whereas the NCOs and particularly those who are gonna be left out of battle on a regular basis would really form the core of knowledge and the core of stability within the battalion and I see that as being one of the uh, the understudied and uh, but but perhaps most important aspects of, uh, of, uh, of combat motivation within the Canadian forces. So did regimental pride or unit loyalty play a part in combat morale? See, I have to be a little careful here because I'm I'm, I'm now the I'm now the historian for the PPCLI, so um, uh, one has to uh, one ha I have to I have to watch watch what I say a little bit. Um, I think that the the role of the regiment, especially in Canadian history, is is very much mirrored the importance of the regiment in 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 the British Army. Our our regiment started off on, you know, from from much the same foundation and have kind of developed very much a life of their own and that that regimental spirit is uh is is something that is taken to be very important as a component of canadian uh military morale and uh and and motivation especially within the within the infantry and we come back to the problem of casualties again and this is this is to say nothing of of peacetime motivation and peacetime connection um and 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 cohesion which i think is really a different beast from when we're looking at the world wars and we're looking at, at high intensity combat um most of the there, there were a number of people, uh, number, a large number of soldiers in the, in the Canadian forces who were, I, I, I think of them as the originals, those who joined in 1939, 1940, went overseas with their unit, joined specifically their unit, um, and, and, and were still serving with it in, say, 1943. But, you know, four years later, a lot of people have been promoted, they have gotten hurt, they have been discharged, they have, you know, they've moved on to depots or training. Well, it, a lot of the people have, have, have dispersed from, from that original, who were, were originally flushed with enthusiasm and wanted to wanted to join uh, wanted to join that particular unit and you are by the time they get into combat it's only a very small number of uh, soldiers who were the originals who are left and I actually managed to try to trace that through their regimental numbers um, in as a part of my study I could I could see um, each casualty I could see what the regimental number was and the uh, Canadian Army very obligingly assigned those numbers in blocks based upon when for, for different time periods and different different units so I could I could trace with a fair amount of fidelity where they were coming from, when they had joined, just by looking at their uh, just looking at their 
number. And the number of originals in the Canadian uh, in the Canadian Army Infantry Corps um, drops down to a negligible number very very quickly. Uh, in starting the first division that goes into combat in Sicily in 1943 has a high proportion of originals. I think it's somewhere around 50 percent. But you know, a year later, it's, it's down less than five percent. Like there are there are there are very few people who had been with the regiment for a very long time who can who survive the level of the level of violence and the high intensity conflict that the Canadians have to face. And as a result, there is very little native attachment to the regiment that is uh, that is that, that can be that can be located. A lot of the reinforcements are coming in uh, and they did not join the regiment itself. They um, they joined through uh, through infantry recruitment depots um, or they are shuttled around from other units. There are there's very there's very little sense um, before they reach the unit that they're going to be fighting with of, uh, of, of any kind of identification, especially when you start to bring in reinforcements from all over the country, and especially from, from Ontario, because Ontario was sort of the recruiting base for the entire Canadian Army in both world wars. Um, and if you have local regiments from um, you know, Alberta or British Columbia, they're, they're suddenly getting a bunch of Ontario people by, uh, towards, towards the end of the war who may not have even heard of the regiment that they're now a part of. And so it's hard to, it's hard to, to make a, a really convincing statement that regimental spirit um, and, and unit loyalty played, played an overwhelming role. I'm, I'm sure that all of these newcomers are educated if, if, if they've survived for long. Um, the, the, survival, uh, the survival rate for infantry uh, in, in the Second World War was not, was not great once they saw combat. Once, but I'm sure that they, they, were, they were brought in, they were taught the regimental traditions and, and so forth. But again, by, by fewer and fewer of those originals who had something, who, who had had that existing connection with the regiment, and very few of the pre-war professional soldiers um, who were a part of Canada's regular army actually make it into battle in the Second World War. They're, they're, the number of them is uh, almost vanishingly small as a ratio of, the, of the, the total number of soldiers who are participating and who become casualties uh, over, the course of the, over the course of the war. So there, uh, which is kind of a long way of saying that I think that it is a I think that that it is a, a phenomenon that needs to be needs to be studied, but I'm skeptical about how much unit loyalty could have and unit distinctiveness could have um, could have been driving soldiers forward as a as a as a connecting bond during the Second World War, and, and that that's that's pretty backed up by the research. Um, the battle experience questionnaires I look at were asking junior officers about well what are the sources of morale what do what do your troops um what what connects your troops the most what do they what is the the thing that will that you can do that raises morale in your unit the the, the most and it's always things like mail leave you know good food it is you know good medical services it's a lot of prosaic stuff is is what the officers identified as like this is what the troops want um i don't think i saw of the 300 experienced questionnaires that i went through i don't think i saw you know regimental regimental loyalty esprit de corps i don't think i saw that mentioned once as a source of as a source of positive morale which doesn't mean that it wasn't that it wasn't it wasn't there operating in the background but i don't think that this was a major thing that was that was connecting soldiers at the time um, in high intensity operations touching on the sort of the wider issue of morale and leave how did canadian army policy shape the motivation of soldiers i'm sort of thinking in terms of leave policy food pay and things like that. How did that uh, actually work on keeping men motivated in the field? 
Well, the Canadian Army uh, has been criticized as as being very heavy on the tail and light on the teeth. Um, it had a, 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 the, the, some some critics have said it had an inordinate number of of uh, people in the supporting in the, in the support and the support services um, that were uh, that were tasked with doing these. And that was in part a Canadianization effort to make sure that the First Canadian Army was a uh, was a self contained. Um, a national fighting force that uh, then uh, we handled a lot of our own lines of communication and such. Whereas in the first world war, we'd relied more more upon the British for that sort of things, and we could put more people into uh, into uh, into rifle units. Um, and it, it, there's a number of knock-on consequences to this, including the fact that the Canadians are running out of infantry by the end of the war. But I think that one of the things, one of the uh, one of the less appreciated aspects of that is that the Canadians are extremely well taken care of. Their pay is good. They get regular leave. Um, the, the mail services are, are for the most part exceptionally good. There are a couple of breakdowns and those are conspicuous. It's conspicuous how annoyed the troops get just looking at, at censorship reports and, and that is studying the mail. It's conspicuous how, uh, how, uh, uh, how, how uh, teed off they are about very small breakdowns in the mail that suggests that this was a, uh, that the, this was, this was very, very exceptional. The, the 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 food services were, were quite good. The medical services um, were were there was a great a great many more personnel had been devoted to the medical services in the Canadian forces than was the case in the British Army. And um, as a result, there's there's a lot of um, there's there's a lot of, of overlap in coverage. Um, there's a lot of there's a good sense among the Canadians that they are being taken care of by the army, and that is, I believe, one of the keys to good morale in that sense that um, that you are the, the, the commitment to performing a job. If you have a sense that the institution that you are fighting for um, and that you're putting your life on the line for is taking care of you, um, is not is not expending your life worthlessly or, or, or expending your life needlessly and is not is not uh, is not going to um, is not going is, is going to make sure that you are taken care of to the fullest extent possible. Um, there is uh, there there there's there's a real there's a real knock-on effect there in terms of the willingness of people to do their to do their jobs. It's also tied to things like the the pensions and you know the uh, the, the a lot of the veterans' rights and charters and such that that go on after the war and that promise that you know we're we're going to look after you this time. We're not just going to leave you dangling and and unemployed at the at the end of this. There's something there's something in it for you, um, which is it, it's is a very it, it's almost uh, kind of goes back to that quote about you know the high mystery versus the or the holy mystery versus the cattle feeding. I, I, I kind of come down on the cattle feeding point of view in that I think that the prosaic elements of making sure that soldiers are are feel cared for and feel that you know they do their job, other people will do their job. That that's really important. And so the tooth and tail ratio is I, I take real issue um, with that. That's that's a big thing in Canada. I don't know if it's if it's quite the same way in the UK. That that idea that you know we we, we need more teeth and less tail in our in our in our military, I think it's extremely unhelpful way of of looking at military affairs. It's not that the fighting services are the teeth, um, and and the, you know the supporters is this unnecessary vestigial tail. It is that they are different components of you know they're different different uh, different vital components of the same um, of the same system of the same machine. And if one part of it breaks down, then the other is going to suffer as a result. And did you find um, any sort of sense of mystical holiness in terms of morale being sustained by sort of ideas of patriotism, nationalism or, or sort of allegiance to a, a defined community? 
Well, not so much. <laughs> and this, this is one of the one of the things that has consistently surprised me. And I think that more work needs to be done there um, because the, the Canadians, I th and maybe the Canadians are, are a little more unique in this in that there's very little indication that the soldiers were you know, fighting for Canada in the sense that, that nationalists like to believe that they were and like to you know trot out the troops as, oh, they, they died for your freedoms and such. Well, no, I mean, like in a, in, a, in a literal sense, I guess, yeah, that that that's true. But it was uh, at the time they were rarely in in the censorship reports and the in the questionnaires that they were filling out. They were rarely ever even mentioning Canada, except to complain about it or to or to um, or to be aghast at the the at the policies of the government of Canada, um, which they did not think had their best interests at, in, at heart at all. And so that I I, I think that you can as, as being a part of a community. Um, is important, and I think it, it can drive certain things. The um, the uh, the Vandus, the the, uh, the Royal Twenty Second Regiment, um, the French Canadian, one of the French Canadian units was uh, in, in the First World War. Certainly had a sense of um, separateness and community that um, that transcended a lot of what was uh, what was felt among English Canadians. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think there's there's the, the French English split within the Canadian Army in the Second World War. Um, I think that the French Canadian units do have uh, a greater sense of community, and there is more of a religious uh, of, a, of a religious connection too, because of the uh, of the overwhelming um, overwhelming Catholicism of most of those troops. Um, but in terms of in terms of the rest of the Canadians, it's really really hard from the evidence that we have left to see um, to see anything except bitter complaints being directed towards the idea of Canada itself. And I, I find I find that really remarkable, um, and especially. Especially because uh, nationalism and ideology and such are are taken to be such important, in in some ways defining aspects of morale and motivation. When we talk about the the soldiers of Nazi Germany, for example, their their the ideology is supposed to have a profound impact upon upon their willingness to fight. Now, I, I can't say that it doesn't. Um, I I can say it doesn't. I don't see any trace of that among the Canadians. And um, given that they, they, I would argue that they fought just as effectively as uh, as the Germans, if not more so, on on, on most occasions. Um, this was th this implies to me that it is not a necessary component of of morale or motivation. One question I didn't ask you, which I will do, was: Do you think that Canadian society uh, shaped morale? I'm thinking about sort of Canadian notions of masculinity, uh, loyalty, or duty. I just wonder whether those sort of community-held values were really the, something that drove ordinary men. I think I think to uh, to a degree. I think there's there's uh, there's a lot of a lot of good work that can be done, particularly on the aspect of, of masculinity and what the expectations of of soldiers and what the expectations of men were supposed to be vis-a-vis -vis their their duty, vis-a-vis -vis their their upbringing, the fact that so many of their fathers and their uncles and their grandfathers had fought in wars for Canada before. Um, there is. Uh, Again, I don't. I don't see a lot of. I don't see a lot of direct evidence of this in the sources that I have looked at before. But I'm. I'm sure it's out there, and I think that there is. Uh, that there are some. Some really great studies on. On the rules and the expectations of masculinity within. Uh, within Canada and how that. How that ties into how soldiers are expected to behave and and what what level of trust they're willing to have with one another. I think that it can be a, a, an important component of of swift trust, knowing that people are not just, not just the training that they've. Had, but also their background, where they've come from, the, the certain set of shared values. I, I think that there's probably something to that. 
and I, I know we've talked about sort of combat motivation, but were there any actual sort of breakdowns in combat motivation? Was there any sort of ill discipline in Canadian forces in any large manner that sort of caused uh, issues for combat performance or worry to the Canadian authorities? Well, I don't know about there. There were some instances, um, if in in uh, particularly with the Second Canadian Division, which holds something of a of a distinction. It was the it was the first Canadian formation to um, to to go into well, accepting the true the, the Canadian troops in uh, in Hong Kong in, at the end of 1941. Um, the Second Canadian Division was committed at Dieppe in the summer of 1942 and um, is essentially has two thirds of its, uh, of its of its forces wiped out um, in in that ill-planned raid. It is a disaster. Um, one of the one of the one of the few disasters that the Canadians really faced during the during the Second World War, um, and the Second Division. Uh, needs to be almost completely rebuilt from the leadership leadership on up. There, there are there's one brigade of the, that was not committed to the action. They're 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 pretty okay, but you got to then kind of leaven the, uh, the the rest of the troops with with some of those veterans. You got to bring in more reinforcements. And um, Doug Delaney has made uh, has made a fairly compelling argument that there's always something wrong with Second Division after the uh, after Dieppe. And whether it's a matter of their confidence, whether it's their leadership, whether it's their motivation, there are some instances in Normandy, for example, where um, units of the Second Division break and run, and that this is are, are unable to hold uh, unable to hold a position. That's it's not it's not unusual to be you know beaten back by the germans that's a fairly common experience across the across the commonwealth nations but this was highlighted as um as uh, as as something as, as a real problem and so second division was always viewed by some of the canadians as being somewhat suspect in and in, in part because they the, the i don't think that there's been a really good study of it that's been published yet and i think that, that we, we need one to look at second div because they uh they they they, they got their noses really bad Badly bloodied, and the process of rebuilding and the process of, uh, of of then reintegrating into the army and and being recommitted to combat and and how how some of the knock on effects afterwards. I think I think that's that's a really important one. There are other breakdowns. Um, there are my uh, uh, my uh, one of the one of the things that my wife studies actually is um, looking at sexual violence. Perpetuated by um, and perpetrated by Canadians um, uh, against German women in 1945 during the conquest of Germany, the the invasion and and the early stages of the occupation, and because um, we know there's lots of stories about the Red Army, there is now increasing knowledge of of um, that the American Army when it invaded uh, invaded Germany brought a wave of sexual violence with it. Um, it turns out the Canadians did too, and uh, my wife working with Jonathan Fennell. Uh, were uh, located a large number of um, courts martial. And I think within a three week uh, period in May of 1945, there's 50 courts martial in the Canadian army for rape and sexual violence against uh, German women. And that's just the ones that were caught. So there are, and, and this, this goes back uh, my, my wife, uh, my wife has a uh, has wrote a wrote a chapter for the book um, Why We Fight um, that that actually explicitly links questions of sexual violence with combat motivation in some really interesting ways ways that I had never I'd never seen before. Um, so the, and and I think that's uh, that's a really promising um, area of study as well. That's not so much a breakdown in you know in in 
in combat motivation in terms of willingness to fight, but it's it's an egregious breakdown in terms of discipline. Um, and this was this was uh, this was known by the army at the time. That's why they cracked down on it uh, to the degree that uh, to the degree that they did. Um, so there there's some there are the, the Canadian army was not a flawless, disciplined, uh, motivated machine throughout uh, throughout the war throughout its its short time in the war. There's a lot of variability there, and those are just a couple of different aspects that show where you know there's some unevenness in its uh, in its motivation and my last question is where can people learn more about your work um, well, uh, why we fight? Um, new approach, uh, Canadian approaches to the, uh, to the human dimension of warfare is now out um, with uh, McGill Queen's University Press. Um, Strangers in Arms and uh, Canadians Under Fire are uh, are both uh, are both uh, also out with McGill Queen's University Press. Have been for a while. Um, I would uh, I keep a, I keep a website uh, robertengen.ca um, that's actually mostly dealing with professional military education matters. And my my latest work is actually on uh, artificial intelligence. And the uh, and um, some of the the, the frontiers of uh, of uh, of advanced computing and warfare, and I actually see that as kind of connected to questions of, of traditional combat motivation. In that, we're there's a lot of talk these days about you know the inhuman dimensions of of, of warfare and how human uh, warfare is losing its its human touch, and what is that going to mean for um, for the human bonds in in warfare? And the question of of, of of automation and uh, and and artificial intelligence and, and these things, I think are are going to be there, there's 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 a lot of uh, growth opportunity for studying this from the perspective of of combat motivation and morale and some of these um, some of these uh, previous uh, previous paradigms and trying to understand where where the human in warfare is is going into the future is uh, it, it, it can be uh, very well informed by where we have been in the past. <laughs>